your faith is not just a private reality. Your faith is a public reality and a political reality, therefore, because it has to do with who has the right to order our lives. Well, Jesus Christ, the gospel message is Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has the right to order our political lives. So it's not partisan, but it's political. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. And welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. Today on the episode, we're excited to have Dr. Patrick Schreiner with us talking about faith and politics. He was on our sister podcast, the Pastor Matters podcast, earlier this week. We're going to continue the conversation and think kind of big picture about how our faith relates to politics. After that, we've got another edition of our listener favorite segment called On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called, what's it called, Dr. Quinn? Headlines. (laughs) That's right, headlines. We're excited to have Miss Amy Whitfield. Amy is no stranger to us here at Southeastern and to many of you as well. She's going to talk to us about the importance of voting even in the midterms. So we look forward to hearing from Amy. Tuesday, November 8th is Election Day across the nation. Why are elections important and how do we steward our votes well? These are all important questions that I think Christians have to ask, especially in our context. And here to help us with this is Amy Whitfield. Amy serves as Executive Director of Communications at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and formerly served here at Southeastern as Director of Communications for a number of years. Amy, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, jumping straight in, uh, Amy, since there's no presidential election this year, this is what we call the midterms, election day tends to fly under the radar. So November 8th, however, is just around the corner. But yet, why are midterm elections so important? Can we just kind of forget about this year and worry about two years from now? Yeah, no, you can't. I mean, you got to enjoy enjoy Election Day every time it comes around. I love it. So a lot of times people get really, uh, they get really focused on the national level. But the reality is we're in a system that has government at every level. And that's, I mean, that's part of design. We have a system that's called federalism, where we have kind of a balance between state governments and national governments. We like it that way. Local governments uh, in our cities and towns play a, a role in what we do. Oftentimes our state and local laws, they affect us more than even the national ones do. And so we're very impacted by the people who are in leadership. So when we, when we talk about the fact that we are submitting to our governing authorities, the reality is our democratic system, our elections mean that the people actually have the ultimate authority because we put our leaders in place. We get to decide who is going to be um, the ones that are making the laws. And then once they are in there, we kind of agree to submit to them and the decisions they make. But when elections come around again, that's another moment for us to say, we think that they're doing a good job. We want them to continue or we want something different. And so a lot of times, you know, we so focus on the presidential election and then we'll get to those down ticket races. But the reality is every, you know, couple of years, we have other ones that that pop up. So uh, and and we need to continue doing this. 
Amy, perhaps we could think about our votes as, as like things that we can steward. You know, we want to steward those well. What would it look like for us to steward our votes well uh, in this upcoming midterm election? Yeah. So one of the things that I do uh, is that in the, you know, in, in the weeks before an election, I will go uh, most places. I, I know where where I have lived now with, you know, the the capabilities of the Internet they will let you look at a sample ballot. So what I'll do is I'll go onto like the North Carolina board of elections and, and I put in my zip code and it tells me, it tells me where, you know, what my precinct is. I click on it. I say, that's, you know, that's me. Uh, Cause I, I'll actually put in my voter registration. I'll say, that's me. It says here. And then it'll give me the ballot of all the things I'm going to be voting in. And I will then do my research. I mean, all these, all these uh, offices, these people have campaign websites, or maybe for some of the smaller offices on the local level, they may not have, um, they may not have a campaign site, but there will be like local papers that do interviews with them. Um, so I, I mean, I do my research on everything down to the like soil and water conservation, you know, supervisor or whatever, because I want to know that I know who I'm voting for. And a lot of times, I mean, we, we certainly, we have a system, a, a two, a two party system, at least in terms of two major parties, but we have lots of other, you know, third parties, things, um, things like that. Certainly it can be easy for folks to say, I just vote all for this party. And that helps give some guidance. Uh, but I like to know about the candidates because I think that helps. And and when you get into some of those more specific roles, I want to know that they're equipped to do the job that uh, that I'm being asked to vote for them for. That's one of the things that I do to steward that well. And then I also just make sure that I have it on my calendar. I have my plan. I make sure if I'm not going to be in town, then do I need to do early voting or you know something like that? Um, I personally love to vote on the day. So uh, for example, this year I will be out of town. Uh, I'll be waking up in Greensboro because we'll have our state uh, conventions annual meeting or state Baptist convention annual meeting. But um, I'm planning to make sure that I'm home in, in that evening in time to stand in line. So whether it's if you look at it and you can't be there and you need to do early voting or if you need to just plan when on your on your day. So I steward it by doing my research and then planning ahead to make sure that I have everything in place to be there. Amy, you once wrote an article for our Christ and Culture blog, and you alluded to the fact that you uh, like voting on Election Day. And the article you wrote, and we'll even put it in the show notes, is called There's Still Something Special About Election Day. What do you mean uh, when you say there's still something special about Election Day? What that was really coming out of was that um, over the last I would say 10 years, um, it, you can look leading up to that even before that, but really the last 10 years have become just so difficult and challenging in our discourse. And um, things are so polarizing now that it can actually make you almost hate the process. Um, you can't turn on the TV without just a barrage of ads all the time. There's lots of negativity. People get you know, are afraid to, to share what they think about politics because they don't want, you know, to start conflict. Um, and so, you, you know, you have all this tension in families or with neighbors, things like that. And in 2020, it was kind of a fever pitch. Um, and one of the, uh, 
one of the things that I just really felt was I don't want the joy and uh, of this day and this moment and this privilege to get to, to vote, uh, to be missed in that. I don't want to be so frustrated and so ready for it to be over. Um, and so like conflict ridden that I'm not grasping the, the incredible privilege that it is. And so that piece I just really wrote out of, you know, saying, Hey, this is stressful. But I, what I felt like I was experiencing was in the week leading up to it. I almost felt guilty being excited about it. Um, because it had gotten so stressful and, and I, I realized that I was feeling that way. And then I thought, my goodness, what, what is happening here? This is supposed to be something that I'm excited about and I need to just own it. So, um, that doesn't mean the stress is, is not there. I think the stress is there for everyone as election day, um, approaches, but, uh, I just decided to lean in and be happy and enjoy it. Um, even, even as I wrestle with, uh, the decisions, you know, to make in the various offices. And even as I, think carefully about some of the conversations that I have, uh, just to be grace filled and, and to, to navigate some of that. I still, I still want to get the joy out of it. That's a good word. Politics can be kind of a mess sometimes, but the ability to vote really is a blessing and it's, uh, yeah. it's something we want to steward. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christ and culture podcast. Thank you. How should Christians relate to politics, and what does it mean to bring our faith to bear in the public square? And a few questions can cause more tension and more heated disagreements. But these questions are vitally important, and we want to talk about them today with Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner serves as Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also the author of a new book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. Dr. Schreiner, thank you for joining us today. Ken, good to be with you guys. So, so good to talk to you today. Uh, now, you were on a sister podcast recently, Pastor Matters, and you were talking about politics from a pastoral perspective. So now let's zoom out and think big picture. How is the gospel political. Yeah. So one of the things I say in the book is that Christians aren't nearly political enough. And I think people might say that sounds crazy because most Christians, I feel like are way too political. But what I mean by that is that, you know, when Jesus came, he announced the gospel of the kingdom. And even those words, gospel and kingdom have very political meanings in the first century. And so in the first century, Religion, politics were not two separate spheres. They were the same kind of reality bundled together. So when Jesus announces the gospel of the kingdom, he's saying the victory of my empire is here. Now that's going to take place by suffering and not by taking over Caesar's throne. But I think one of my main aims in this book was to point out to Christians, your faith is not just a private reality. Your faith is a public reality and a political reality, therefore because it has to do with who has the right to order our lives. Well, Jesus Christ, the gospel message is Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has the right to order our political lives. So it's not partisan, but it's political. 
Uh, so you say we're not nearly political enough. Uh, and then another time you say, however, in another sense, we are too political in the wrong way. So yeah. what do you mean? Yeah. So depending on how you define political, when we hear political, I think we hear partisan. So when you hear, oh, that church is very political, <laughs> right? You hear, oh, they're talking about candidates and how you should vote. Uh, I'm talking about politics in the historic sense of the word in terms of the activities associated with the organization and the governance of the people. It has to do with rulership, who has the right to order our lives. It's what happened in the public domain. So in one sense, yes, we're way too political, maybe in terms of just talking about the issues. In another sense, we forget, you know, another way to put it, our true allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Everything else is the sideshow. It's the footnotes. And one of my concerns is that Christians make the footnotes the main text, if we're talking with that metaphor. And we need to remember the human governments are the footnotes to Christ's kingdom. One author said that every human empire will be a footnote of history. And, and so I'm just pressing on that reality that every human government is subsidiary to what Christ is doing. And so when I say Christianity is political, it's a public reality. Jesus Christ declared himself to be king. That needs to be our first order of business when we talk about politics. Yeah, I think that it's difficult for us in the 21st century to understand the first century setting in which Jesus made his announcement. This is, you know, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. So let's unpack that a little bit. You, you are a New Testament scholar. What's the background for the word gospel? What would it have meant in the first century context? Yeah, there's, there's a variety of different ways that gospel, euangelion, is used, basar in Hebrew. But if you look through the Bible and through history, just the literature that we have, it's often used in terms of military victory. It's often used in terms uh, of someone riding into the city and saying, guess what? We have good news. Good news is that we won the battle or that their king is dead. We have that in 1 Samuel. We have that in the Old Testament. We see that uh, actually Israel announces the good news of victory or the, even the Philistines. They announce good news. The king of Israel is dead. And so we think of gospel as like, this is how we get to heaven. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is this, this is the way that we're saved. And there's there's truth to that. But uh, and, uh, I mean, another term for gospel is just victory. Uh, it's the victory of Christ's kingdom that is here. And so if you put that background to what gospel is, then you start to see, wow, G uh, Jesus's announcement of the kingdom is fully political. And then kingdom, you know, a lot of people argue kingdom. The other term is that, you know, it's only about God's reign or God's reign in our hearts. But kingdom it is about a sphere. It's about a place. It's about, <laughs> it's about a city, a society. And I think we, we sometimes want to erase that because we don't know what to do with it. But so Jesus is announcing the victory of his empire. But again, how is he going to do that? By going to a Roman cross and submitting himself. To Rome. So it's the paradox of I announced that I'm the king of a kingdom and that my victory has come. And then Pilate looks at him and he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, but it's not a king like you think. <laughs> so if I hear you right, a gospel would be like this big blaring headlines on a newspaper or perhaps big headlines on a, a web page like the Drudge Report or whatever, where they'd have in big, bold letters, something announcing wonderful uh, and, and amazing news. Yes, uh, exactly. Yep. 
and, and, victor- then, and victory. So, yeah. Well, in the first century setting, uh, I'm thinking of Jesus uh, preaching for the very first time uh, in Nazareth as, after he's begun his public ministry. He stands up and reads uh, from Isaiah, and he says, this day, these words are fulfilled in your ears. And they're all listening, and, and it, they, they're tracking with him. They, they like him. Uh, but before his, his, uh, that morning is over with them, they're trying to throw him off a cliff. That's right. Um, so uh, it, it lets me know that this is a very politically volatile time. Yes. You know, in other words, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I can think of sermons that I've preached that probably didn't go over well, but I've never had the crowd try to kill me <laughs> <laughs> at, the end of, in, at the end of the sermon. So your title is Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. In what ways was the first century politically crazy? I mean, what was the environment in which Jesus was making this announcement? You know, Rome was in charge at the time. And one of the things that I do in this book is often when we go to the New Testament, we think about the Jewish background because that's easier for Christians in some sense because we have the Old Testament. It's like all in the same book. Our background study is there. Mm-hmm. But we forget that this was in the time where Rome was in charge, and this is what we call the Greco-Roman culture. And Rome was unique in that they would often allow the different people groups that they conquered to do things in their own way so that there wouldn't be rebellion. But at the same time, they were always nervous about rebellion. And so the reason that Pilate is interested in seeing Jesus is because they're always thinking about when is the next time that a new people group is going to rebel. And if you think about Jewish history itself, there's been a ton of revolts with the Maccabees and the um, uh, there's, there's just been like guerrilla uprisings and you're going to have that again, post Jesus as well. So yeah, too terrible. The, I mean, you have the, you have the war in AD 70 and then you have the right. Bar Kokhba rebellion Yep. Each of those are just horrific slaughters. That's right. So Jesus is stepping into that political context and he's both stepping into it and he's redefining what he's trying to do. I actually think his announcement is contrary to what many of those revolts did, because if you read his ethics, what does he say? Like, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, put away your sword. It's all laced in there that he's actually interacting with those traditions and saying, my kingdom is not like the kingdom that you expect. And so it's difficult. And that's where it keeps on coming to this kind of paradox of reading the New Testament. It's still a fully political message, but it's not a political message that we would assume. And so, yes, Jesus didn't come riding in on a white horse, but he will come riding on a white horse as revelation. And so like, we can't, uh, one way to put it is we can't miss the politics of Jesus. So whenever he said, love your enemies, that was, that was not an abstract concept at all to them because the Romans were standing over there in the corner. That's right. Uh, and, and so they had a very concrete uh, referent whenever he said that. They, he, they, they would have understood this in, in very concrete ways. Yeah. And you think about the Sermon on the Mount. He's directly talking to if a Roman soldier comes to you and says, carry my stuff for two, one mile. He says, go two. <laughs> so he's thinking about how do you actually... Like, he's not just to abstract love your enemies. He's like, you know who your enemies are? Rome. If they ask you to do something, do even more for them. So that, that's where it's so hard for us, for us politically, because we recognize we have a political message, but we also recognize our political message calls us to, as Paul will say, 
And I think Jesus says in paying taxes to Caesar, submit to them, <laughs> honor them, says Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 17 and 18. Honor the emperor, um, honor everyone. So really, if you even turn over to First uh, Peter, I think it's 2.17, if I'm remembering correctly, he has four phrases there where Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice yeah. you honor everyone and the emperor, but you hold a special place in your heart, love the brotherhood and fear God right in the middle there. You, re- you hold fear for God because he's your ultimate loyalty. You're pointing out that Jesus announces the arrival of his kingdom, but it's a kingdom unlike what they were expecting. And so you, you, you highlight in the book two different approaches to politics, submission and subversion. Can you flesh out each of those concepts, the way you use them, and help us understand what you mean by submission and subversion? Yeah, one of the best ways to think about this, I think, is just to remember that both of these actions are stemming from our submission to God. (laughs) So because God rules over our lives and that we've submitted to him, he says, therefore, you are called to honor and submit. Again, Romans 13, Paul talks about this in terms of paying taxes. We are to submit to the governing authorities. Why? He says, because God has instituted them. God has appointed them. So therefore, in our submission to rulers, we are affirming in our submission, God has placed them where they are supposed to be. However, at the same time, it's very clear throughout the biblical tradition. I think as you read through the Bible, this is maybe a little harder to see, but it's very clear throughout the biblical tradition that if they call you to do something that is against God's commands or against his will, that you have a kingdom that trumps their kingdom and therefore you you honestly rebel. You, you use your words or you use your actions or you refuse to do something because they are not sovereign over your whole life. God has given them a certain jurisdiction. I say them, governing authorities. And when they step outside of that jurisdiction, you no longer can obey them because they're no longer doing their duty. So I don't think governing authorities are, are to command us um, how to worship or who to worship or how to practice our faith. And once they step outside of those boundaries, then you say, I'm no longer, I must subvert what you're calling me to do. That's not going against Paul's commands in Romans 13 or Peter's commands. That's recognizing God gave them the power of the sword, not the keys of the kingdom. So we are citizens of two realms, of two kingdoms. And and so the challenge for us in this present age, which is in between the passing of this present age and the incoming kingdom, here we are between the times. Um, should we understand ourselves? You've already made reference to First Peter, so I think I know where you're going to go with your answer. Should we understand ourselves as citizens of the heavenly kingdom? Should we understand ourselves as marching into Zion and establishing the kingdom? Or is it better for us to understand ourselves as living in Babylon and living in exile? What's the motif for us as New Testament Christians who are of this present age and yet we belong to the kingdom that is coming? How do yeah, we relate a, the two? That's a great question. I, I mean, I lean towards, uh, this is a good question. I haven't had this. I've done a lot of interviews and I haven't had this specific question. So I like this question. I appreciate it. I lean towards First Peter and his kind of imagery of we are living as exiles in Babylon waiting for the coming kingdom. 
At the same time, I want to take uh, Philippians and say our citizenship is in heaven and we are called to go spread the good news of Jesus's victory. So I think in one sense, we are marching forward with our mission. But when you say marching forward, like bringing in the kingdom, to me, sometimes people understand that as a form of dominion. Mm -hmm. But our politic is always one of persuasion, not of dominion. So I, I don't mind both metaphors, just as long as we define that other metaphor, not in terms of carrying the sword and the spear, but in terms of um, convincing people that this is the way that God has ordered our lives, and this is the true Savior, and this will be best for them. In that sense, we are marching forward, but also living like exiles. And so I think both metaphors actually somewhat fit together it's how do you march forward? You march forward in the midst of suffering. And, you you know, just thinking out loud right now, this is how Jesus did it. The way I like to put it is on the cross, he both submitted and subverted because it was on the cross that he brought into motion the end of every earthly kingdom. But how did he do that? By submitting to them and dying, <laughs> by living as an exile. And so somehow both of those are true. He was... Uh, when you read the New Testament and his death, it is the exaltation of the king in the midst of his shame. And I think all of the New Testament authors take that paradigm and says, that's the paradigm of your life. You are conquering by suffering. I would hold to the exile motif also. However, often whenever I hear someone talk about the exile motif, they'll use the expression. They'll say, well, we're a faithful presence in, in, a, in an alien land. And I always think that's a bit anemic and passive. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, yeah. no, we're more than just a faithful presence. We're to be a faithful witness. Yes. There is something yes. proactive. There is something that we're supposed to be moving forward. I'm not just supposed to be standing around here. I'm supposed to be advancing <laughs> the kingdom. That's right. And, but that does bring up the point that you make, the way that we are to advance the kingdom is not in a way that, unfortunately, uh, some have done in the past in which they've actually tried to wield the political sword to, to, to in effect, coerce uh, a certain, certain uh, political agenda. And that's never gone well. In Revelation, it keeps using that word conquer, conquer, conquer. It's actually nikao, Nike, victory, have victory. Yeah. And they say, have victory like through the blood of the lamb yeah. <laughs> by witnessing to the gospel. And so it's such a paradigm kind of buster because it's like, oh yeah, we go out and we conquer, we have victory. But again, the way that we do that is we end up laying our lives down. So this podcast is scheduled to drop just before the November election. Yeah. As Christians go to the polls next Tuesday of what we've talked about and what's in your book, what should inform them as they are trying to make their choices? Yeah, so much to say, but maybe first I'd just say your primary political identity is in Christ and his kingdom. And so if we remember as we go to the polls, that's our primary mission, our aim, our identity. You're more linked to your African or Asian brother and sister in Christ than you are to your fellow Democrat or Republican neighbor. <laughs> so let's yeah. put that there first. Um, but second, I would say that shouldn't make you passive and that shouldn't make you to the point where you don't care about what's happening, because I think Christians are called to care for the flourishing of humanity. So that means you should vote according to what your principles and what God has said in the scriptures will bring 
the most happiness and peace and uh, I guess flourishing, I'll use that word again, to humanity as a whole. And so you look down that ballot and you say, how do I integrate my confession of Jesus as Lord with loving my neighbors is a way to put that. Just because Jesus is Lord doesn't mean we pull out of the political life. <laughs> it means you actually re-engage in a new way in terms of how you love your neighbors. And then the final thing I'd say, and I know this is kind of a popular phrase, but afterwards, be a non-anxious presence. And what yeah. I mean by that is you, you have hope and you don't have to worry like the world. Because honestly, like I said earlier, these things will be a footnote of history. And so you can rest in the sovereignty of God and you can rest in the victory of Christ, knowing that you have done your duty and you're trying to be faithful. And so I would say press forward and don't get all worked up about things. You have anticipated my next question because this season, our emphasis is on spiritual formation. Mm. And one of the things I was going to ask you is how does our approach to politics inform our spiritual formation? And I think I just heard you kind of answer that. Um, you know, how, how, in what way does our approach to politics form us spiritually? Yeah, I mean, besides being a non-anxious presence, and that's a that's a word I I especially give to church leaders, but all um, really Christians, I would just say remind people. I, I know this is simple, but you go back to the, the simple gospel message that we have hope, that we are a hopeful people. So First uh, Thessalonians right talks about we are not like the people of the world that grieve without hope. Rather, we, there can be grieving even in the midst of our political what I call our political pandemic, but we grieve as those who have hope because we know that the resurrection of the dead is coming <laughs> because Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe another word to use just to help people as they're listening. Paul uses the term sober-mindedness a lot. I look at the political landscape in, in Christianity and I say, there's not a lot of sober-mindedness going on. <laughs> so maybe a push for us is to say, be sober-minded. The opposite of this is getting drunk on politics. If you're watching cable news five hours a day and getting stoked up in rage and fear, that's not sober-mindedness. You're being discipled more by cable news than by the scriptures themselves. So I would say re return to the scriptures, return to books that remind you of your true hope. Uh, Patrick, where can people find your book? They can find it anywhere books are sold. So you can look for it on Amazon. We, we published it with B&H Pub. You could look it on the website there. I'm active on Twitter, so you can check out some of my work there as well. We have been talking to Dr. Patrick Schreiner, Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. He's author of the new book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. Dr. Schreiner, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. And now it's time for that listener favorite segment on my bookshelf where we ask Southeastern faculty and staff what they're reading right now. And up with us today is none other than the great Dr. Stephen Ecker. Dr. Ecker, what are you reading? And I bet it has something to do with the Reformation. Currently, I'm reading Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet by uh, Bruce Gordon. Uh, it's a new Yale University Press offering for 2022. And uh, I'm reading this book for uh, a couple of different reasons. Number one, uh, hashtag I love the Reformation. So anything that is of the early modern period, because I try to live my life 
uh, in the 16th century, devoid of plague, which I guess is a little tricky now. Uh, I like to read anything from that era that gives me a better window into the Reformers, the Protestant Reformation, the development of theology, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, The other reason why uh, I am reading this book currently is uh, Bruce Gordon was my doctoral supervisor at the University of St. Andrews, and so uh, to read something of his is always uh, invigorating and uh, encouraging to me because of the way in which he handles history uh, with great care, but also precision. So uh, again, to be able to, to link those two uh, is, is, is really important for me. And then lastly, uh, this is uh, important for me in some ways as a daunting proposition because I have just submitted a manuscript on uh, Zwingli as well, doing something different than what this book does, uh, Bruce Gordon's offering, uh, is a true biography of the 16th century Swiss reformer. My treatment is looking more at his uh, pastoral ministry, some of the ministry and theological components. Uh, but the reason why this is important for me then is having not read this purposefully until after I completed my draft, this gives me a way of reassessing what I wrote uh, to see how it is that he was uh, interpreted, that is vaguely how he was interpreted and understood by uh, by Bruce Gordon, just to make sure that, A, I'm, I'm on the right track with my piece, but also then just to see the differences in the way in which we approach a figure from the 16th century, the way in which we look at and understand his theology uh, and the world in which he lived. So that's why I'm reading this book. Uh, again, it's God's Armed Prophet. Uh, a book on Holrich Zwingli uh, by Bruce Gordon, Yale University Press. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Christ and Culture. We hope that you enjoyed uh, the various segments that we have. If you will, give us a five-star review uh, at wherever you get your podcast. That helps us a lot when it comes to sharing this content with other people. And also, we'd love to hear from you. If you would email us at cfc at sebts.edu. Again, that's cfc at sebts.edu. And just tell us how the podcast is encouraging you and even things that you might like to hear about. If there's a topic you'd love for us to address or maybe a a person you would love for us to have on the podcast, let us know that. We'll do our best to track that person down and even have some good conversations about these various topics. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.